0: China what do they even say? <laughs> what is this chinese rap music? sounds like they're just saying ching my chance new go watch in china we play ping pong, pong. In china
1: hello and welcome to china econ talk donald trump on august twenty third tweeted fentanyl kills 100,000 americans a year president c said he would stop this it didn't so What is fentanyl? Why is it killing so many people? Why in China are the Pablo Escobars of the drug trade able to operate openly? And how does this all end? Ben Westhoff is author of the recent Fentanyl Inc. And also wrote a book on NWA and Southern rap. So, by the way, we're going to talk about that at the end of the show, too. Ben. Welcome to China Econ Talk. Thanks, Jordan, for having me. I'm very glad to be here. So I hear opium has a pretty long history in China.
2: At the beginning of the 19th century, there were a pair of opium wars that were fought between China and England. England was plying opium to China via its East India company. And basically, Chinese people were getting addicted in huge numbers. And They fought twice. Uh, France got pulled into it at one point and eventually China lost. And that's how Hong Kong became a part of England was how the spoils were sort of divvied up.
1: Yeah, at its height, you, 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 you swipe some statistic that one in four men had an addiction to opium on the mainland, which is sort of unbelievable. My other favorite opium-like little history factoid is that during the Civil War, one of the little bits of CCP dirty laundry was actually that Mao, for all the sort of like uprightness of the uh, red movement, was actually allowing opium production and taxing it as a way to fund the uh, red Army. Army. But this is not a history show. This is a show about the present day. So drugs in China in the 21st century are very taboo, but still a, a, a pretty reasonable health problem, aren't they, Ben?
2: Yeah, they're the drugs that China has the biggest problem with today are heroin, meth and ketamine. And one of the crazy statistics I found out was that, um, well, the, you know, these, all these statistics come from the Chinese government, so it should be taken with a grain of salt. But apparently marijuana barely registers. It's like one in 10,000 people uses it and cocaine barely at all either, which is crazy because those are the two most popular drugs in U.S. and and Europe. And so um, they definitely have their own problems and their own like unique methods of using drugs. And there's all sorts of paranoia. Parents will turn in their own kids. You know, people who live in apartment buildings are visited by government officials and asked to rat out other people living in the building and stuff like that.
1: You write about how basically from 1950 to 1970, China was so poor that, you know, there was really no drug market. But after um, reform and opening, Myanmar started selling heroin into China. And also the DPRK um, became a, a meth lab that sold into the Chinese mainland. And I just love this as a little sort of bilateral relations issue with uh, the Chinese government sort of like complaining to North Korea, being like, guys, can you stop this? And, you know, it's very obviously the, a government initiative to sell this sort of thing, right? There's no like underground drug manufacturers that Pyongyang isn't aware of, uh, which is this pretty funny sort of like parallel between Trump telling Xi to stop the fentanyl production and she and telling Kim basically the same thing.
2: Yeah, that is funny. Yeah. From what I understand, North Korea is not currently like actively in the trade, but they certainly permit it. And as recently as not long ago, they were very much involved with the production and funding government activities through meth exports. Okay, so
1: let's now come to fentanyl. Talk a little bit about this guy, Paul Janssen. Who was he and what is his uh, significance in this story?
2: Paul Janssen was a Belgian chemist who invented fentanyl in 1959. And he had his own company, but then they later sold to Johnson & Johnson. And so fentanyl You know, he got it by basically manipulating the chemical structure of morphine, and he was trying to get something that was longer acting and better to use in the medical theater. And it was, you know, medical fentanyl was and is a really important medical drug, and it's still used for stuff like colonoscopies for men and um, when women have epidurals during childbirth, it's used for that. He also developed all these other crazy fentanyl analogs which are slight variations of fentanyl, stuff like carfentanyl, which is used as an elephant tranquilizer. It's that strong. It's 100 times more potent than fentanyl. So some of these drugs that Janssen invented um, have become really useful. Uh, in hospitals and whatnot, but others have just become solely used in the realm of abuse.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the reporting process. So how did you go from, you know, rave deaths, as you write to uh, down a China rabbit hole?
2: I was the music editor at LA Weekly earlier in the decade. And I was report. this is how I got writing about NWA and Dr. Dre and all these group and all these uh, gangster rap. Subjects, which became my book um, called Original Gangsters. But I began reporting on raves and specifically why so many people were dying at raves. Because I had been a raver, a little raver back myself in the late 90s and early 2000s. And people would take ecstasy then, but no one ever died from it that I saw. And so I was wondering now why eth- ecstasy had become so lethal. And what I found out was that there was very little ecstasy at all, very little pure MDMA in so-called ecstasy tablets and molly powders. And so I found out about these new adulterants and wanted to know what the deal with them was. And it turns out there were hundreds of new drugs. Nobody knew much of anything about them, but they were all synthetic, all made in a lab, and they all came from China. And so I started going down this road. I was going to write a book about ecstasy and ecstasy replacements, but then I found out fentanyl was by far the most destructive and damaging of these new drugs. So the book kind of shifted towards that.
1: So, so talk a little bit more about the sort of reporting angles of how you started to, to learn about this world in the PRC.
2: I kept talking to people about these new drugs and fentanyl and everyone kept saying they were made in China and it was all sort of very abstract at first. And, you know, I knew drugs coming from places like Mexico and Colombia and Afghanistan. And I, you know, didn't really know that much about China. But it was really like shockingly easy to learn about these drugs. I just literally started Googling buy drugs in China or buy fentanyl oh, in Jesus China. And, and, you know, this was 2017 and it, it would just be a list of companies, Chinese companies. And I visited their websites and the salespeople's email addresses were right there on the page. All these chemical companies have like the same boilerplate pr- template And you could always find out even their addresses for their companies. Sometimes these would be wrong, but sometimes they would be real. And so I started Skype chatting with a bunch of salespeople and I posed as a customer. And sometimes we would just get into these long, long conversations about not just the drugs they were selling, but their personal lives. And I'd ask them if they knew what fentanyl was and how it was causing such a horrible crisis in the US. And they would say no, or not really, or well, kind of, but I still have to feed my family and uh, got
1: pretty deep. So, you know, websites that openly sell incredibly deadly, dangerous uh, scheduled drugs is a rather odd thing to come across. So what is it about fentanyl and maybe the system in China that allows for Um, or has allowed for such a long time for these companies to act above board? In the
2: US, we have uh, a law that basically bans certain types of drugs before they're even invented. So all, not just fentanyl, but any new types of fentanyl analogs, you know, synthetic cannabinoids, which are known as synthetic marijuana, like K2 and Spice, these often are banned before they're even, you know, created. Called blanket bans. But in China, they have to schedule or make illegal each drug one by one. And so all these Chinese companies selling these types of fentanyl and other bad drugs sort of exist in this gray area. So when something is banned in the US, but it becomes popular on the internet, you know, there's all these websites dedicated to these obscure new drugs. And so people find out about them and then. These Chinese companies will start producing them and selling them during the narrow window before the Chinese government gets wise to it and and schedules them.
1: So, where is the I guess like innovation going on? Who's who is actually creating these these new molecules? Is it folks in in Wuhan and whatnot, or is there a is there a sort of another market out there for these uh these these new innovations?
2: Well, a lot of these new drugs are actually things that were created by legitimate scientists in labs, often decades before. So, like, if a, a scientist was trying to come up with something for you know to fight alcoholism or addiction, maybe a new psychedelic, or they're manipulating fentanyl to try to find a new analog, um, and they they write about it in these papers. And often, this was like in the '80s or the '70s, even. And then these were just put on sort of dusty university shelves and and forgotten about. But in the internet age, all these papers have started to go online. And so lots of people who are looking for new drugs find certain scientists that they know work in the, the realm of drugs that can be used recreationally and start, you know, going through their papers page by page and pulling out these Jesus. chemical formulas. And so so some of these who,
1: who you know. know that archival research could be so uh history of science <laughs> research could be so lucrative jesus
2: <laughs> exactly and so then i think a lot of the chinese chemists i think some of them are perhaps inventing new drugs drugs but i think a lot of them come from the internet and they go on these forums for drug nerds basically who are talking about these these brand new things and there's people called psychonauts who pride themselves on trying drugs that have never been tried before And so they're basically human guinea pigs. And they take these these brand new drugs and then write about their experiences online.
1: You know, it sort of reminds me, do you know that Abby Hoffman book um, where he like teaches you how to make explosives and whatnot?
2: Oh, yeah, um, I do.
1: Everyone had that yeah. when we were kids. So um, I remember there was like a section about like how to like live in New York City. And it was telling you where like all like the free food was. And this was like in 1965. And me and me and, you know, the 1997, I was like, oh, let's like try to go to one of these places. And the anarchist cookbook, right? Work yeah 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 there you go. but you know it's funny because that was a th- that has a real sort of ideological bend to it and I think the, these psychonauts do as well as they they very they very much feel like they're sort of like part of a new movement and and expanding consciousness and whatnot but the the sort of going from there to like you know these like multimillion dollar um, businesses is a very weird sort of twist on uh, what the sort of like initial push for these things comes from.
2: Yeah. A lot of these people like the psychonauts and these drug nerds on the internet, like I talked about, I mean, they put a lot of time and energy into making sure that they know what they're taking. They often will start with a very small dose, take it. And if they don't feel anything, they'll take a little more and they work their way up. But yeah. they, I think they think that because they're able to handle it most cases that everyone should and but when these Chinese companies are distributing these drugs like on the dark web, and even over the clear web, they're selling huge volumes to anyone who wants them. And it's just no quality control. It's not safe at all.
1: Yeah. And hobbyists are not necessarily buying, you know, tons of these things.
2: Right. Exactly.
1: You know, there's an interesting sort of political economy angle to this where on the one hand, you know, China really wants to grow its um, its its chemicals industries, but has not quite been able to sort of reach the the highest cutting edge and the highest profit and value margins that the um, American and Western uh, European firms have been able to to do. So um, talk a little bit about the sort of government incentives and where, I guess, manufacturing like fentanyl fits on the uh, global chemical value chain. Well, China has the biggest pharmaceutical industry
2: in the world, but it's not the most profitable one. Chinese chemical companies tend to sell stuff like uh, generic drugs and vitamin C and all this stuff, whereas the US has a smaller industry, but it's more profitable because the US sells like name brand pharmaceuticals and stuff like that. So China is in the midst of this big push to try to move up the so-called value chain And so they offer all sorts of tax incentives. So companies will make drugs that are more profitable and brand name and things like that.
1: So this is like we're beyond Jesse and Heisenberg, but not quite at full fledged uh, giant Pfizer factory um, for for making this sort of thing.
2: Right. I mean, there's there's some huge Chinese pharmaceutical firms and they're undoubtedly will be among the world's biggest before too long. But for now, it's like you'll have 100 chemical companies in the same region that make acetaminophen, you know, which is the drug in Tylenol, for example. And so, they're trying to enc- encourage con- uh, consolidation of these companies, and they're basically trying to become more competitive in the, the big money marketplace for, you know, these cutting-edge drugs for that are just receiving FDA approval and stuff like that. So, unfortunately, fentanyl falls right in with this. And so, China actually offers a value-added tax rebate for fentanyl exports. So, you know, when I I tell people this, like their minds are blown, and mine was too, but fentanyl is, like we were saying, a legitimate drug. And so, uh, America doesn't import any legitimate fentanyl from China at all. It's not permitted. But China does export pharmaceutical legitimate fentanyl to a number of countries. And so, that's part of their trade. But China also offers these value added tax rebates, basically a tax break for exports for all these other types of fentanyl that have never been used in the medical realm. And so they're basically just types of fentanyl that are killing people and yet China offers all sorts of tax breaks for it. It's it's kind of mind
1: boggling. So on the one hand, you know, you can you can look at the, the VAT for the straight fentanyl and think, oh, man, maybe if like 97 percent of this is is above board and legitimate, that's sort of understandable. But I think it really um, gets uh, your blood boiling when you see these variants that also get um, government subsidies. And I think, you know, it's it, people when you when you look at the uh, you know, this is a really good example of like gross um, sort of like back dealing and lobbying that goes on in the in the in the Chinese system, which I is sort of hard for people uh, maybe who don't live in China or, or do business in and around China to appreciate. But, you know, if you guys think like sort of the some of the tax carve outs that um, American firms are able to pull in Congress and in state houses are bad. I mean, this is this is really this really takes the cake. Uh, and I think it's pork. a really good example. Yeah, serious pork and also the sort of thing where like You know, if there was a civil society that could, like, raise this as an issue, um, you know, this isn't something that anyone's proud of, right? Um, And definitely something that you could see um, a, a, you know... A, a like consumer protection group or whatever getting getting upset about, but the fact that that isn't there, and you know, really means there's there's no one to push back on this sort of thing except for um, Mr. Uh, ben Westoff hailing uh, out of uh, St. Louis, Missouri, which is maybe not number one on the you know Wuhan municipal uh, <laughs> government's priority.
2: Well, we'll talk more about that in in a minute. I just found out that one of these companies that I infiltrated called Wan Cheng was a the factory was burned down very recently. and uh, But maybe I should back up and tell that whole story first. But... Um,
1: yes, please. Yeah.
2: So after I was doing all this internet research, um, I started looking for fentanyl precursors being sold out of China. And so precursors are the most important ingredients used to make fentanyl. So the Mexican cartels import these precursors from China because they don't really have their own robust chemical industry in Mexico. So they depend on China for these precursors. So I was trying to find out who's selling these precursors. And I found all these companies in China. But then the more I dug in, the more I realized that these were all shell companies for this one big company based in Wuhan. It was called Yuan Cheng. And then so I went to Wuhan and I visited it the place. I pretended that I wanted to buy some and they let me in. It was in this big hotel. It's like this budget chain of hotels called the Home Inn. And they had two <laughs> floors of it. It was also a functioning hotel. And all the employees working for Yuan Chung lived in the hotel. These are all like 20-something recent college graduates. And I saw their sales sure. floor, just this vast sales floor with hundreds of people at cubicles these young people, they were using social media and Skype and selling fentanyl precursors all day long to the, you know, they told me that Mexico is their biggest client. So it was obviously the cartels. And... Uh, the
1: Chinese dream right here.
2: Yeah. And they got like good benefits. They got like a free cell phone. Their, their ads listed like five types of insurance and, you know, free room and board. So... Um, so so it was crazy. I got to meet the CEO. He was sitting there at one of the cubicles himself. He was described to me as the richest man in Wuhan at one point. And um, I don't know, for people who don't know Wuhan, it's, there's like 11 million people in central China. It's not well known to Westerners, but it's like a chemical industry hub. And they have really good universities there and sort of a pipeline of top chemists coming out of university into the industry. And some of them, Sort of navigate to this this rogue industry.
1: I searched uh, uh, Wuhan Yuanzhong on on LinkedIn. There's like seven sales managers linked. But anyways, okay. So talk a little bit about uh, a little more about this company. You said you met the CEO, and they've had some some recent developments. I hear.
2: Yeah, they. Um, you know, I talked. He was very candid with me. First, I went there undercover in Wuhan and and met with him. And, and but then I had these two. Sales ladies. They were both named Amy. They were, they both called themselves Amy. They were roommates. Um, they were you know kept trying to flatter me, and they were pretending to guess my age and guess like a decade lower than my actual age. And um, and they tried to do some translating with the CEO, but their skills sort of petered out. So later, I called the CEO and told him I was a journalist and I had a proper translator and everything. And he was just not you know, worried at all. He didn't ask me what publication I was from. It was basically just like, well, the Chinese government permits these, you know, drugs to be sold, so we sell them. And he didn't have any moral quandary. And he said he got all these tax breaks. Uh, China also gives companies as like part of the tech industry, their company is considered like a member of the tech industry because they developed some new chemicals. And so, they get to be set up in these in special industrial zones where they get subsidized staff training, subsidized land and rent and everything. And um, it's really just a bunch of systems that have gone haywire. But, but so, so then I published a piece in The Atlantic that talked about this company and my infiltration a few months ago. And almost at the exact same time that article came out, um, one of their factories, Yuan Chung's factory in Wuhan, like was burned to the ground. and the news oh, report said that um, arson has not been ruled out. And this guy um, this this guy, the CEO, he had another company. It was actually a hot springs resort that also burned to the ground a few years back. So there's there's all sorts of shady stuff going on behind the scenes there.
1: All right. Uh, You didn't go to the Hot Springs, though. I did go to the Hot Springs
2: because I thought it would be... Oh, you did? Yeah, I saw all these ads for it. And I I was like, man, that could be a fun little day of reporting to go to the Hot Springs and check it out. But when I got there, it was like out of a post-apocalyptic movie. All the windows had been smashed. The... That fire had taken out most of it, and it was basically going back to nature.
1: So um, these salespeople, they're telling you all these tips to evade customs, which is also pretty um, incriminating. Can you talk a little bit about the the, the custom system and how it sort of plays a, a role in this whole industry?
2: First of all, they showed me the phony packaging that they sent the fentanyl precursors in. They also sell tons of steroids, by the way, like anabolic steroids that are that are controlled in the U S but legal in China. But so they showed me these like bags, they look like dog food. They showed bags that were like these snacks, dried banana snacks. And they said they had, you know, people and customs, both on the China side and the U S side. And they shipped through just regular, you know, like FedEx, the U S postal service, DHL. And so, you know, the thing is with fentanyl and these fentanyl ingredients is such a tiny amount, that it's it's pretty easy to ship. And the bigger sure. the bigger quantities go in these massive shipping containers. And so just imagine trying to it's like a needle trying to find a needle in a haystack with these things.
0: Looking to advance your Chinese language skills and your career? The Hopkins Nanjing Center, an academic collaboration between the Johns Hopkins University and Nanjing University offers opportunities to earn a graduate certificate or a master's degree in China, take coursework taught in Chinese, and gain a multidisciplinary foundation in international affairs. Chinese and international students study and live together in a bilingual community. Hopkins Nanjing Center graduates are uniquely poised to understand diverse facets of China's commercial, economic, and political relationships with the world. Learn more about guaranteed scholarships and career outcomes by visiting nanjing.jhu.edu. Now back to the show.
1: You know, you talk about, uh, there was this great story from a few years back about how Taiwan was able to ship tank parts to a Singapore actually going through the Hong Kong port. And, you know, if you can ship tank parts, you can probably ship like a package of like very, you know, innocuous white powder. So it's really not inconceivable to expect these things to be uh, to, to be caught in the mail. Yeah,
2: like Taiwan was selling these big these tanks to to Singapore. And so the way they were shipped was through Hong Kong. And then they would sit in the Hong Kong port for days and days until they, you know, got going the rest of the way. And this was happening for years, you know, until it was finally discovered not long ago. And there was this huge uproar in China because, you know, they, they don't want Singapore doing business with Taiwan. But it just, you know, if fentanyl, two grains of rice worth of fentanyl is enough for someone to overdose. And if they can't find a tank, they're definitely not going to be able to find fentanyl.
1: So aside from going to Wuhan, you also made it to an actual drug lab on the outskirts of Shanghai. So tell a little bit about um, uh, what what went out there.
2: This was another case, a guy I met on Skype and um, he was making not just precursors, but types of fentanyl itself and the analogs and also these um, synthetic cannabinoids like K2 and spice. And so he, uh, I said, you know, could I meet up with you? Can you show me the lab? And he he agreed to, to, to meet me at this train station. And then he said he was going to take me to his office first, but it ended up being his apartment. And it was on the kind of the penthouse level of this swanky apartment complex in Shanghai and where he lived with his family. And he also had a LinkedIn profile with a picture of his wife and You know, looks like a totally normal family man, but he printed off this list of all the drugs they were selling. And, you know, I was pretending not to be a buyer myself, but I said that I had a friend who did a big volume in the drugs business (laughs) and that I just happened to be in China and I was going to scout the lab. And if this lab was up to our quality standards, then my friend would place a big order and, you know, as you can tell from my... Con- and, and, and are
1: you like, do you, are you like good at this? I, I would say
2: I'm not good at this. Um, you know, <laughs> okay. he was really not trusting. You know, he kept asking if I was a journalist. And he asked me like two or three times. And I kept <laughs> saying, no, that's crazy. What are you talking about? Um, and then he, he like took me to lunch because he wanted to sort of vet me a little more. And so finally, I guess I passed muster. He he wanted to believe, obviously. Uh, so he could make a big order. And so he called up his driver to take us to the lab. And this guy picked us up. He was this like strong muscled dude who I was worried was, you know, gonna like the guy in charge of breaking kneecaps if, you know, a j- journalist was found. And so I was kind of, I was pretty nervous. But we, and, and then we drove like way to the outskirts of Shanghai, like 30 minutes south. You know, I had one of these these phones that I was renting. And so I didn't know how to use the GPS properly. I don't speak Chinese. And I had a translator who was sort of going around with me and I was trying to text her basically where more or less we were, but I lost track of it. And we finally arrived to the the lab and it, it looked kind of just like a, a like new construction suburban office park type of thing with a, a, a sure. fountain in the parking lot. And we went in and it. Uh, we went to the, the floor with their company operating. They had maybe five or six employees and maybe a half dozen rooms where they were synthesizing chemicals. And it looked, yeah, it looked kind of like the Walter White Lab. There were these uh, big industrial-sized chemical glassware. They were brewing up these types of fentanyl and these synthetic cannabinoids. And I wouldn't say it seemed underground or unsafe you know, the equipment was pretty modern. There were some weird things like when we walked into one of these labs, the chemist pulled his shirt over his nose. And I was like, well, shouldn't we be wearing like masks or something? But they, they had these big tubs with one kilo sized bags of the drugs that were ready for shipment and just piles of the drugs everywhere. I was really astonished by the scope of the operation.
1: I'd like you to play, you know, New York Times ethicist columnist for a second. I don't know if the best way to do this is to, like, force rank, um, but maybe to go through sort of the Chinese chemists, the sales rep, the Chinese government, American doctors, the Sackler family, Americans who don't tough out their pain, Obama. Where do you allot the sort of guilt for uh, the 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 rise and the lethality of this drug to?
2: I definitely put the opioid manufacturers who suppressed studies saying just how addictive these pills were, you know, at the top of the list. And the Sackler family has gotten a lot of the blame, Purdue Pharma, who made OxyContin. But there's also here in St. Louis, this company called Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals, who produced more pills at the height of the opioid crisis than any other company by far, something like $29 billion. And their sales reps, they, they had all these emails going back and forth saying like, it's like Doritos, we'll just make more. You know, people, it's almost like people are addicted to this stuff. And um, the doctors prescribing them, I mean, I think a lot of them genuinely wanted, you know, had the right intentions. They they were being told that the the addiction problem was way overstated and that these pills were not going to get people hooked. And so I think they, most of them, you know, there are pill mills and stuff like that. And those those are definitely issues. But and, and you know, on, on the state level, um, a lot of people have accused China of sort of turning a blind eye because fentanyl is not a problem there. You know, there's not a big addiction to fentanyl problem in China. And so it does have to start there. And these these tax rebates that they're giving out for the export of fentanyl and these dangerous drugs, I mean, that's that's something that i don't know if it's just an example of cap- capitalism gone crazy and certain people in power didn't even realize this was happening but but last year at sort of the height of the the us trade war with china the fentanyl that rebate the value added tax rebate was raised from 9% to 10% and so that smacks of something that's maybe a little bit more callous but
1: um i love this as like the opium war revenge of we're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna punish the West for, um, you know, putting our country into a hundred years of, um, uh, of, uh, of addiction by by uh, by hooking the rest of the world. I don't really buy it, to be honest. I think it's just like the PR is pretty terrible, and this is not like a very large part of the Chinese economy, right? These like fentanyl manufacturers. Yeah. So I imagine there's some there's some like weird like local regional political economy dynamics that's like driving this as opposed to like some grand strategy to addict um, uh to like, you know, weaken America's, you know, men aged 40. And <laughs> yeah, up. well, there's... But, um, uh, but yeah, it's still, uh, you it's know, still we've
2: been kind of deluged with uh, right wing media requests for this book. And everyone keeps wanting me to say that this is some grand conspiracy by China. It's a form of warfare. And some people point to these um, there's like this US Army white paper from a few years back that quotes these top Chinese generals saying that there are all sorts of different unconventional forms of warfare that they could employ and one of them includes drugs warfare and you know I, I don't know. I mean I, I I'm not a conspiracy theorist in general, but some of this some of this policies just so boneheaded sometimes i don't know what to think
1: you know it's interesting because it's 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 very much echoes of kind of mccarthyism and people being really scared of americans um being brainwashed by the chinese so to see this sort of manifested in a new way of like now the chinese are turning you know our population into um into these heroin addicted zombies is a is a is a really interesting odd yeah historical yeah icon.
2: and you know ultimately what I say though is that we have we can't control the supply side. we can only work on the demand side and like that's what China is saying is that the. US has created this horrible overwhelming demand for opioids and that we need to work on that and I'm a favor in favor of what's known as harm reduction, which is just sort of admitting that people are always going to use drugs and trying to help them do so or do so more safely. And so I you know even if we do manage to sort of suppress this industry in China it will just probably gravitate to a place like India which is already making large quantities of um of fentanyl for export but but you mentioned uh you you mentioned Trump and he has made the fentanyl issue part of the trade war so last year China, China promised to control to ban all fentanyl analogs. So, you know, as a blanket ban, like I was saying, normally they can only ban things, uh, drugs one by one, but they promised to blanket ban fentanyl. And so that was supposed to go into effect in May. I think it, you know, it probably did, but I presented before this congressional commission in July and that was the first time all of my findings became public about all these tax breaks and about all the how China considers these companies tech companies and subsidizes them and stuff. And so Trump immediately went on this like Twitter rampage, um, including the tweet that you quoted at the beginning of the show. And so um, I think he sees this as evidence that China isn't doing enough to slow down this tr- to slow down this practice and you know I don't agree with Trump about much but I do think it's good to tie these two things together the trade war and the fentanyl trade because ultimately this is like part of the the whole system that's you know the business economic capitalist system that's at the heart of the trade war. So
1: um, so coming back to our ethicist issues, like the sales reps and the in the and the Chinese chemists, what um, you know, level of, of guilt will you assign to, to them in this. I asked in this a
2: event? bunch of them if they knew about the salespeople in particular, if they knew what they were selling, and they said no. And at first I didn't really believe them, but but you know, they don't the fentanyl doesn't really register there. You know, obviously there's a state controlled media and so they don't have much reason to have stories about how Chinese fentanyl is causing a huge crisis in the U.S. So
1: yeah, I did. I did a search for this on uh, on WeChat the other day, and there's, yeah, you know, there's it's, nothing.
2: It's crazy. As for the the chemists themselves, they definitely know more. And the CEO of Yuan Chung, who I talked to, was sort of talking himself in circles. And he was saying, "Well, these chemicals can be used for a lot of things, not just for making fentanyl." And I said, "Well, no, that's not really true." And I said. If, you know, if if you stand by the sale of these chemicals, why do you send them in fake packaging? you know, and promised to get them through customs and stuff. And he kind of became uncharacteristically silent. To rural yeah, Mexico. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I, I I, definitely assign blame there. And also, it's the sort of thing where like these sales reps, you know, they're like in college and they're walking down a job fair. And these places just look like, you know, the, the company that sells uh, Advil or whatnot. But the chemists also have like other options that are very obvious. And maybe, you know, the profit margin goes from like 15 to 7 or what have you. But yeah, it's a really... You know the, the the scene the scene you had in your book of like the guy with his happy family and the in the Shanghai penthouse. Yeah, just, I, I really um, think was was you was know, really and I nauseating. think that's where
2: the the tax manipulation by the government c- comes in. I think a lot of these you know. These drug chemists are just businessmen at heart and business people at heart. And if the tax code favored selling, you know, something benign, they would sell that instead. It's just they go where the money is.
1: Do you have any thoughts on the the, the recent Dave Chappelle uh, joke in his Netflix special where he goes on about, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do his delivery. But he says, like, basically, this whole opium crisis thing, I feel exactly the way white people felt about the crack epidemic. Basically, yeah. I could not care less. Yeah, I
2: saw that. Yeah, well, I know a lot of people have said how during the crack epidemic in the 80s, it was a big like blame the victim mentality and that it was seen, as, you know, incarcer- like locking people up was seen as the answer. But now that with the opioid epidemic, because a lot of white people are being afflicted and because like the children of people in power and politicians are overdosing, that it's being seen as a situation where we need treatment, where we need care, and we shouldn't be sending people to jail. And there's definitely a lot of truth to that. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's uh, the, the response to the crack epidemic was awful. But I also think that our new way of looking at drugs, we're sort of evolving as a as a society, I think, when it comes to drugs. And this is spilling over... Hopefully, to all drugs. And I went to these, like, to a small town in uh, North Dakota and interviewed people who were affected by the death of this 18 year old kid. And it's, and it became this whole town wide effort to reform the way they think about locking people up and instead moving them into treatment, not just through, for opioids, but for even for like alcoholism. And so I think we're moving in the right
1: direction finally. So, interestingly, hip hop has seemed to really have this taboo about talking about using crack.
2: Yeah, and it, it's interesting because obviously every rapper almost talks about smoking weed and then even drugs like Xanax, you know, Zanny's and and pills have found their way into hip hop songs. Molly has been a staple for a while, but then there's a really a line at when it comes to stuff like heroin and of course fentanyl there, you know, a lot of rappers talk about selling cocaine and heroin and stuff like that, but but not using it. And, and, you know, Fat Joe, the, the Bronx rapper, I talked to him one time and he talks about, you know, he's, his nickname is Joey crack. And and that actually, it turns out that comes because from his pants sagging, he said was how he got that nickname, which I, which I didn't know, But, but I, but I asked him about drug use and he was, you know, if he used drugs, he was like, hell no, I've never used any drugs at all. You know, he was offended that I even asked that, and so it's it's a very very interesting little little line.
1: Yeah, I think DMX is the only one who's made a song or two about uh, the use of these uh, these really hard drugs, um, and uh, maybe we'll put a link in the show notes. <laughs> so. Um, so anyway, so you you had a recent interview with Tyler Cowan where he asked you uh, to pick Biggie and Tupac. And you said, you know, initially you were you were a real Biggie fan because he has this like delivery and lyricism, which is just unparalleled. But at the end of the day, you know, or nowadays you're 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 more leaning on Tupac's side because, you know, though he may not have this sort of verbal dexterity, he's a man with the message. And, uh, you know. Whatever messages are cool, I guess, but I really think um, there's a there's a really strong argument to be made for Lil Wayne as the greatest uh, lyrical artist of, of of all time. And you know, you you say that um, 808 is influential from a sound perspective, but I think lyrically at least little Wayne has set the tone for um uh, uh for for an entire generation coming up after you know 2006 2007 2008 you know Kendrick um hands down this generation's greatest uh has learned a ton of tricks from Wayne and one of his earliest records, actually he rapped entirely over Carter three beats as an homage to wheezy F baby. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about little Wayne, place him in a bit of context and where you see him as a, as a historical figure in, in, in Southern as well as uh you know, nationwide rap hard left turn guys.
2: <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> it's okay. Um, yeah. As you know, I wrote a book about Southern rap called dirty South and little Wayne is on the cover actually. Um, I am certainly a big fan of early Little Wayne lyrics and rapping, especially. I, I like his DJ Khaled stuff. He he had this very surreal. He would just just rap totally off the top of off the cuff and go places where other people would have thought it was too silly. And I've always appreciated that. You know, the Carter Three. I like loved that album so much when it came out, and that was sort of going back to drugs. That was the height of his syrup days and so but then after the album he he was arrested on a gun charge and so he had to stop drinking the syrup and he had like 10 root canals or something when he went into prison because the the syrup had like rotted his teeth so badly and then he was forced to sober up and so for the carter four i don't know it just fell off a cliff for me and um i feel like the lyrics got really bad but 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 so what i mean every artist has like their peak and no one's going to be a genius forever. And so I agree. I completely agree
1: with you that his influence is like basically unparalleled. You know, talking about the influence of, of various uh, American rappers in China is Wayne is, you know, very underrepresentative because I think, you know, his flows are incredibly unique and difficult, which I think is hard to do in Chinese. And just like the jokes are so sort of like culturally specific and linguistically specific. And like the puns are so hard that you need an incredible level of not only like English fluency, but also cultural fluency to appreciate his genius, which I just find uh, sad. And like the rappers I talk to, um, you know, I ask them like, who, who, is, who, who do you like? And, you know, they say Migos, they say, they say Tupac, they say like, you know, people who rap a little slower. And when I say Lil Wayne, they're just like, yeah, like everyone tells me good but like yeah, i just don't, don't feel get the love it. yeah so, that, there's um,
2: definitely some ra- rappers translate some don't same with rock bands you know some just don't translate and i think um you too for example i think is one of the most famous rock bands worldwide because their choruses are just they simple messages that even if you just know a little english you can sing along with and kanye actually after his second album um started kind of graduating to uh, no pun intended to like bigger bigger venues arenas stuff like that and so he purposefully made um, his album graduation be have these like these big choruses that were sort of stripped down and easy to sing along with and I think that's a you know that helps you translate to other cultures
1: yeah nowadays I mean everyone in China has at least like like everyone like who's sort of educated in china has has at least like really basic english um but um uh, but yeah like the level of lyricism that 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 little wayne brings the brings rap to is, is 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 beyond people who've you know studied for 10 years in the u.s so you know the question of the longevity of 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 hip-hop and comparing little wayne to to shakespeare now you know on the one hand like if you go to a shakespeare play there are so many jokes that you don't Get unless the actors are doing an incredible job, and or you've like read the play before and like read over the show notes, and you know, okay, like this word means that thing. On the other hand, you know, there are there are definitely sort of like emotional and, and character arcs that go through and and beyond the various puns and whatnot. But I'm worried particularly about Little Wayne because there's like no. Um, you know, there's no there there in terms of like emotion, aside from I don't know, like five or ten songs. So it's it's sort of sad for me to think that his rap, because it's so like like reference heavy and cultural specific, that even like thirty years from now is going to be difficult for people to sort of like listen to it and have it click in their head in the moment without having to go to Rap Genius. Um, so I'm 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 worried that one of the great geniuses of our time is not going to be able. Um, people won't be able to experience him at the same um, level. Yeah, of intensity. well, that's, I
2: think that's a that's a reasonable thing to be worried about. And I also think that a big part of his influence is not just his lyrics, but sort of his his cadence, his like his delivery style. You know, he has this like this very yeah. specific voice, and he kind of made it cool to to have this. I don't know if whiny is the best word, but he um, uh, the the way. Yeah, just yeah, experimental. That, that's a great way to yeah. put it. You know, like so so many rappers before, like tried to stick to the flow and do these very specific delivery styles. But he like just went way off the rails with that. And I think a lot of these types of rap, like mumble rap and this sort of sad robot autotune stuff, is has a direct influence from him.
1: I've heard no, um, you know, that the sort of like Lil Wayne, young thug type of experimentation in Chinese rap is basically non-existent. And I think part of it is because it's just due to Chinese, like the language itself, where if you, you know, Lil Wayne is famous for... Pronouncing words in different ways, um, where you can still hear them, but like they just rhyme with other things. But with Chinese, if you pronounce something different, uh, it just sounds like a different word, um, and it doesn't really, it doesn't really work like that. I'm sure there's ways to do it, and I'm
2: sure like as the genre evolves in China, people will get increasingly more. Um Creative and interesting.
1: There's not a lot of room for weird in Chinese mainstream, or like even like sort of mainstream culture, which I think is is sad and and perhaps another reflection of why um, he doesn't necessarily resonate. So you know the other the other nice thing I my you know f- f- closing out my sort of um, uh, rant on uh, Chinese uh, rap and rap in general. It's fun to think of like rappers. And just like what their ana- what, what their like analog would be, so like you know Horace Shakespeare, but I think like Laoza as well, you know like like you know the all these like crazy Taoists um, who are just like writing these one liners. I feel like is definitely sort of in the same sort of stream type of creativity as um uh you know the folk the, the rappers that you've portrayed uh-huh. in your in your book. Oh,
2: I like that. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I have much to add, but I like that theory. I
1: guess Laoza didn't really want a <laughs> Lambo though. Like, where else do you see the sort of creative force of rap in sort of creative uh, history?
2: I don't, I don't know. Like, um, just talking about more recent music history, people are always trying to tear their hair out to figure out where rap came from. Like, who was the first rapper? What was the first rap song? And people are always throwing out things like Gil Scott Heron. I think Tyler Cohen said that, and some people even say Bob Dylan. And and then, um, but then there's. Yeah, I I don't know about that, but (laughs) subterranean homesick blues, I guess, has kind of a (laughs) rapping style. But then there was all this stuff with like comedy records from the 70s and people like Blowfly and Dolomite. And they they had kind of this braggadocio, these sort of like sex rhymes that merged with like disco music. And, um, you know, but but so I guess I don't worry as much about this because I feel like this sort of like talking the song instead of singing it has been around for a while. And this idea of um, telling braggadocious stories. I mean, that certainly goes back for many, many hundreds of years. So I think rap has sort of just always been in
1: in the atmosphere in its own way. Ben Westhoff, author of Fentanyl Inc. Thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk.
2: Thanks for having me, Jordan. It's been a great time.
0: China Econ Talk is edited by Jason McRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Taishan Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week.
1: 将八神医的虐王出现